It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. This is going to be one that all of my my people that like it when I get back to the basics, because I think that's when the passion of really what I enjoy about financial planning and investment management comes out. So if you like it, when I get back to the basics and, and that passion comes out, you're going to dig this show today. By the way, this is The Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston, sitting here with Mr. Bo Hansen. He's an associate of mine here at Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. By day, we are fee-only wealth managers on the south side of Atlanta. I'm also a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist. Now, let me tell you what, kind of give you a little background on what spurred this show and then also kind of set the table and tell you what's, what we're going to talk about after I talk about the, the main topic here is that we had to do a 401k presentation for one of our 401k clients at the beginning of the week. And when I was doing the presentation, I was like, you know what, I have not done one of these really good back to the basics, welcome to why you need to be saving for the future. And if you're young, broke, it's okay because I'm going to t- make you feel really good about that today and tell you that the market's kind of in your favor if that if that's just situation you're in. And Bo, you, you cut your eyes over, and I know that's because some of the drama we've had going on here at the office today behind the scenes. Um, <laughs> you can share that if you want. Negative ghost you. rider. That's but the name between it, us. It, it, anyhow, you know, after I talk, to, talk about just some of the basics of why you need to be saving for retirement, some of the things that are hopefully will get you pretty energized about doing that, Um, We are going to come back, and I've got some emails that I want to share, as well as some comments that have been posted on the website that I think are awesome. I ask you guys, I love it when we do shows that kind of hit people both ways. I have some people who write me who are very excited and and like, right on, good job, I'm glad you're saying that stuff. And then I like it when other people who very thoughtfully, they're not mean, they're not trying to hurt my feelings, they're just trying to give me their point of view – I like it when we have both sides of the coin kind of get shown, you know, brought up because then that gives me the opportunity to go do some more additional research, get into the whole geekiness that of, of what I enjoy, and we, you know, I can come back if I feel, you know, pushed to, um, give my thoughts on what they said. Also, hopefully, in a very respectful way because um, I do appreciate my listeners tremendously. I love it when you guys write me and, and give me feedback. And let me give you the, the the website as well as our email address. Our website is money-guy.com. And go check out our, our show notes that we do for every show, as well as register to be a, become a free member, where what we'll do is we'll blast you out an email every time we do updated information on our website. You can also pay um, the $29.97 a year to become a premium member, which just gives you access to all of our archives. So you can go back in time and really you know, figure out what you can do to stretch that, that dollar bill that's hanging out in your back pocket. Because we, we are here to go beyond common sense and, and really kind of help you tame the chaos of your personal finances. So let's kind of talk about, um, Bo, did you have anything you want to add there before we jumped right into to the retirement meeting that we did and I kind of give some of the insights? The, the first thing, we're pretty excited about how things have happened with the 401k. You know, this is let's talk about what's been going on out there in the financial world. We all know, because it wasn't too long ago, and we've been broadcasting for since 2006, so we were on the air back when times were good, and then we are on the air when things really got poopy out there in 2008. Um, remember, I have young kids, so that's how, that's how we say things when you have you know one-year-olds and seven-year-olds. But anyway, in 2008, things got pretty rough, and um, that really skewed a lot of the data out there. So if you go out there and look at 
how markets have performed, how portfolios have performed. Um, you want to make sure you're looking at a five or a 10 year performance figure so that you can really see how 2008 impacted things. Because remember what happened in 2008, the markets, meaning the, the S&P 500, loss, if you include dividends, about 37%. If you take out the dividends that the S&P made that year, I think it, it actually dropped to a loss of about 38.5%. So th that's pretty scary because, you know, most recessions, you know, when we have downturns, usually it's about twice every decade, you have um, some readjustments in the, in the marketplace. It, it's, it's not uncommon that you'll see the markets adjust and lose between 10 to 20%. And, and when the markets lose 10 to 20%, just to tell you kind of how we look at that as, as a professional money manager, is that we're hoping that our clients lose a third to a half of what the market does. So if the markets are down 10%, we're hoping we're only down 3 to 5%. If the market's down 20%, well, you know, we're hoping we're down somewhere between 7 to 10%. That's the way that, you know, that's, that's how. And then, you know, the other side of the coin, when things are good, when the markets make money, we're hoping we make two-thirds or three-quarters of the upside. Um, you, you try not to get all of it because, remember, you're diversifying. You're adding bonds. You're adding, adding um, you know, long-short funds. You're adding cash and equivalent-type holdings. You're trying to mix it all up so you have yourself completely covered no matter what happens. Well, 2008 was a very unique year because you know we instead of losing that tr that typical 10 to 20% you lose in a downturn adjustment like i said we got pretty daggum close to 40%. That's catastrophic. That's the type of stuff that we'll be talking about for many many years. You know, i think they have they officially named it, Bo? Is it going to be the great recession? The great recession is, the yeah, is, that, is that our official title, i guess. Um i'll be curious to see if that sticks 20 years from now if we're still the great recession or if they've got some other nice um thing on it, the, the you know title that they put on it. The thing I've been telling people when I go out and do public speaking is that I'm hoping, and, and Bo, you've heard this at least, what, four or five, maybe seven times, that I, I say that I'm hoping that never again in, in my professional career, meaning that this is the type of adjustment, correction, re great recession, whatever you want to call it, that probably comes around about every 30 years. And I, since I've been managing money since the mid-90s, um, you know, I'm hoping I'm not... Well, I think it'd be okay if I'm doing this 30 years from now, but I think it'll be by choice in 30 years. It won't be because I have to. It's just because I love doing what I do every day. But um, I don't know if I will see another one of these. I think you might, Bo, I think, and I think it's going to be an incredible learning opportunity for you to be a professional money manager and actually manage money during a downturn, a dramatic downturn, because you're going to be able to kind of bottle up the way you felt emotionally and use that for the benefit of your clients in the future, which is, which is incredible. Because remember, I came out in the mid-'90s, Everything was rocking and rolling back then. You know, I, I remember being the guy before March 2000 that was like, gosh, I'm young, I'm saving. But, you know, everything, the market's making 28% this year. The market's making, you know, over 20% for the last five years. I, you know, the only thing that really stinks to me is that I've only been out of school for four or five years, so I have no savings. You know, I don't have a lot. You know, even though you're saving 10 to 15% of your wages, you know, making a lot on a little doesn't generate a ton of money. So I remember always being very jealous because uh, it seemed like everybody was making all this money around me. And then we had 2000 happen, which was the tech bubble, and kapow, you know, knocked everybody back in check. And that was my first big, big learning experience. Because remember, I was around during the internet, internet boom where you could buy a fund. Remember they had the internet funds and stuff? Well, I don't know. You might have been playing. I was going to say G.I. Joe, but they, that probably wasn't what you were playing with. That was more back when, what they have, Care Bears? What, what, what was it? I'm sorry. I'm just being silly. But anyway, back at, you know, in 2000 when it kicks in, 
the thing is that I remember is that people were thinking you could that, that these things were going to to heaven, you know. And I had I have a very smart friend of mine who says trees don't grow to to heaven, and and it's very true. I mean, trees don't grow to heaven, and and, and all these things that we think are going to keep going don't. But there there were investments back during the internet boom where you could buy. In March and by November, you doubled your money. That's the markets. Typically, that doesn't work that way. So we had to know that there was something bubbling up out there. But everybody was making so much. I think we all got kind of punch drunk on what was going on. So 2000 happened. It was bad. 2001 kind of continued. It was kind of just ugh. It wasn't great, but it wasn't. You know, it was about a 12% loss that year. And then 2002 was just that was the one where I think a lot of people just gave up. And I, I still internalized how I felt managing money there. And it was an incredible learning opportunity for me to kind of take that, learn from it. And, and that way I was prepared in 2008 when this happened. So 2008 and getting back to, to the point of that is, is that what was unique about 2008 also was is that equities lost tr- a tremendous amount of money, but bonds in that fourth quarter did the same thing equities did. They gave it up. And that's very unusual. You know, when you talk about diversification, you're supposed to be talking about things that aren't correlated, things that aren't aren't tied together. So when stock market goes up, typically you're not seeing the bonds making a great deal. Um, But you're also not seeing when the stocks go down that bonds are giving up a lot of losses themselves because they're not correlated together. Well, guess what? Fourth quarter 2008, they did the same thing. Everybody lost money. Really, the only thing that didn't lose money was pretty much what? Cash? Cash was it, wasn't it, Bo? I mean, you're you're studying, you're getting your CFA, so you're you're studying a lot of the the you know the different asset classes and, and calculations and things, and it was a unique year. But I, I bring that into perspective because I think a lot of people, because it was so dramatic, just being the way we're wired, you know, humans are wired with that that when you when you get nervous, when you get scared, was that fight or flight. You know, it really is something that's hardwired into our into our genetics is that when we get scared, we remember the scared stuff a lot more than we remember the positive stuff. And it's the same thing. You know, it's the reason I've talked about this before. I feel like I'm a broken record sometimes. It's the reason that the news media focuses on a lot of the negativity versus the positive stuff is because they know that's what's going to sell. It's going to sell more because we're wired to remember the negative stuff a lot easier than the positive stuff. And so um, the thing you have to remember is don't let that, you have to control your emotions and don't let that skew your long-term success. And what made me feel good, and I can't, you know, remember, this is, this is a broadcast we do for the masses. Um, so I can't get into the actual allocations that we're using for the 401k because that wouldn't be appropriate because everyone, you know, has their own risk objectives. You have your own age. You have your own different income levels. So that's something that, you, you know, you're going to have to work with independently. But we can give some generalized advice. And what I was pleasantly – go ahead, Bob. I was just going to throw a plug in there and say that, you know, you mentioned that. But we actually do, if you are interested, and this is something you'd like to check out, in the premium section we actually have a risk questionnaire where you can go in, answer, answer a number of questions. It will kind of tell you which one of our model portfolios, if, portfolios, if you were in a Preston in Cleveland – 
401k, which model you would fit into it, it actually will show you that asset allocation. It doesn't recommend specific funds, but it shows you asset classes and the percentages that we recommend, and those are based on our, our annual 401k updates. Yeah, so it's like the questionnaire we give out at big 401k enrollment meetings and things like that, but not going to have specific investments. Remember that. We, we only talk about generalities of asset allocations. It's up to you to go find the funds that, that kind of match up to that. But what I was pleasantly surprised to see was that, you know, 10-year average, the S&P 500, even as of September 30th, when things were really good, still down. Meanwhile, all of our model portfolios done incredibly well. They were all um, the range. I'm trying to flip through my pages here. Um, they range from, you know, making around 6% all the way up to about 7.5%. So it was kind of exciting. But remember, these are unaudited numbers, so just take that as a generality. You know, it's not something that I, I want you holding us to because um, those, are, those are not audited numbers. That's just, you know, putting the, the portfolios into Morningstar and seeing what the 10-year average was according to Morningstar based upon those asset allocations. And what that made me realize is, is that even though we've had a catastrophic loss of 2008, if you stayed and did what you were supposed to be doing, you still have money. You still made money. And that also means, remember, we've talked about this too, is that there's a lot of indication out there that earnings and, and values of stocks have really been depressed down, that there might be some potential for, for some outsized returns. And I know there's a lot of scary stuff out there. You know, I, something I'm going to be talking about a little bit later is I did that podcast on American exceptionalism, and we've got some feedback on both sides that I'm going to share with you. And I'm not trying to get back onto that topic, but I did one of the things about that when I did that podcast that struck me was that Milton Friedman, when he wrote his Free to Choose book, he had that, he had that statement that says, the, the experience of recent years slowing growth and declining productivity raises a doubt whether private ingenuity can continue to grant ever more power to, to government. And that was written back in 1979. And don't get caught up in the, the political. My point is, is that Milton Friedman, when he wrote that, was talking about is, are we going to be able to really come up with something cool enough to get us out of this bad situation we're in? And this is 1979. Little did, you know, Milton understand we had the personal computer that was going to completely revolutionize how we do business, how we interact, how we buy goods, you know, how some people meet their spouses. Uh, and then we get the Internet in the 90s, and that, that kind of flows through to everything I just said. It's just taking it to the next level. And then we have now where I told you last vacation I went on the Disney cruise, I was practically shaken by the end of the trip because I didn't have my iPhone in my hand. You know, so this is the world we live in. And I'm telling you, all of us who are feeling negative or, or scared, what's coming for us in 20 years? That's what's exciting, or 30 years. I mean, because this is that's 30 years ago. That's what's exciting to me is there's some technology out there that is going to completely change our life that we don't even know is coming. I mean, Bo and I talk all the time, and I've told you guys, Netflix, the Netflix streaming, holy cow, that thing is awesome. I mean... Uh, video games, Netflix, I don't know how you young guys do it. You know, anybody who's, you know, that, that 16 to, to 20, I would be so pasty white, probably <laughs> not have a girlfriend. Um, I don't know if I'd graduated college because, I mean, I almost got sidetracked with this te Nintendo Techno Bowl when I was in college. So I can't imagine what you guys do with these video games and then the streaming movies where you can watch TV or TV shows. It, it truly is amazing, and that, that proves my point exactly what I'm talking about is that innovation is something that's incredible. Let's actually get into some analytical stuff 
One of the things that, you know, and, and this kind of proves my point, is that Milton Friedman made that comment when he, or statement, I should say, when he wrote his book in 1979. And then I, I have a graph that we use in a lot of 401k meetings that shows the power of not trying to time the market. And what it does is it shows if you invested $10,000 in 1980 and then let it grow to the end of 2008. So we have not updated this since the end of 2008, but I thought that was a great place to end it because 2008 was so bad. And what we found is that if you had invested $10,000 in the S&P 500 back at the beginning of 1980, at the end of 2008, that $10,000, if it had stayed invested entirely for the you know full time, you weren't trying to market time or anything, that $10,000 would have grown to $202,730. Did I say that correctly? Two hundred two seven thirty. Right. And then if you would have you know stayed in, but you tried to time and you missed the five best days, that two hundred two thousand, almost two hundred three thousand, would have dropped down to one thirty four eight forty two. So almost one hundred thirty five thousand. You missed the ten best days, it had dropped down to one hundred four six forty eight, or close to one hundred five thousand. You missed the best thirty days, down to forty five seven hundred three or forty six thousand. And then mess the best 50 days, it had dropped it down to 22,969, so right at 23,000. But the biggest point of that, of this slide that we like to show, is if you know you stay fully invested, you take 10 grand, it could be worth close to $203,000 from doing absolutely nothing at a time when you have some, you know, one of the more well-known ec- economists out there saying, "Holy cow, it's really cruddy out here right now." So take that into perspective when you're trying to figure out, do I stop? saving for retirement because i'm always amazed when i'm out there in the public and i'm talking to people even my peers and i say now are you doing the 15 to 20 percent you need to be saving for retirement or at least making sure that you're doing your 401k to get the full match and like no no i, I shut that down i'm like well, why, why did you why did you shut down your, your your retirement savings brian that market's losing money right now i gotta i gotta cut that out you know i'm losing every time i got a statement i look at it i've lost money And I kind of cringe whenever I hear that because what I'm thinking about is that, guys, the best time to be buying in your 401ks is typically the worst time. It's that whole thing that, that, you know, I was reading an article this morning, and there's that Warren Buffett quote that you see everywhere. But it really is true, and it's great advice, is that, you know, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. I see that. I can't read an article, it seems like, without seeing that statement, and I know I've overused it a lot, too. But it really is true, that contrarian going against that, that whole hardwired flight or, you know, or fight mentality we have where you're running away from the fear you know, and you actually consider it an opportunity can be very, very profitable and good for your financial independence in the future. So, so think about that. So the next time you talk to a friend, because I know if you're listening to the show, you, that's not you, but if you're talking to a friend and they say, God, I, I got out of that thing, it was, we were losing money. As long as the core principles are good, it's good investment. The fee structure is good. It's you know you believe in the products of what they're doing, or the or the S and P five hundred, or the mutual fund, whatever you're investing in. If it's good, then keep going with it. Don't don't get out just because right now things aren't working out that well. And then I kind of roll that into when we're doing these presentations, is and I talked about this this morning. Unfortunately, I've done this enough. I was able to give these numbers right off the top of my head. I, I did a guest reader program at one of the local middle schools today. And, um, Bo, I need to share this with you. You talked about these numbers to middle schoolers? <laughs> Brian, tell me you didn't do that, please. Yeah, I didn't even share this with you. Yeah, I ended up, um, well, they find out what I did for a living. And, you know, can I tell you, what do you think the very first question that this eighth grader asked me? Are you rich? 
pretty much. They said, are you worth a million dollars? I swear <laughs> to God, that's, that was the first question this eighth grader asked me. Well, think about it. When you were a little kid, that was what you always wanted to know. When you you met, can't like, ask someone. that, though. That's taboo. Yeah, but when, when someone's wearing a tie, you always ask, hey, you must be a rich person. I wasn't wearing a tie. Look at me. Do you, am I wearing a tie? Well, I'm just saying, when I was in eighth grade, I thought people who wore ties had to be rich. I'm wearing a UGA coach's <laughs> shirt. I look like, you know, I walked to lunch with my buddies today, and they go, are you are you coaching the defensive line? I said, yeah, instead of getting a night job at Walmart, I'm now coaching the defensive line. But um, anyway, because I've got my Nike coach's shirt on. I look like Coach Mark Rick right now. But what I when I go and I, I use this graph, and I got a little sidetracked there, but I use this graph when I go and talk to – the children at school or wherever I'm out at, whereas everybody thinks a million dollars is where rich is or where being wealthy is. So I, we have this great little thing, this chart that I've used, and I've used it here before, where all you do is you assume that the markets can make a 10% rate of return. And you just put that out there. I know that seems scary right now to say 10%, but let's just go off of historical norms. Let's just say you had an investment that could get you 10% a year. How much would you have to save per month as a one-year-old to be a millionaire by the time you're 65. So you have 64 years of savings. The number is as low as $14. A 20-year-old only needs to save $95. Remember, this is what got me doing this for a living. I remember I told you I had an economics teacher in high school who, um, I think his name, I'm trying to still, I'm so mad at myself that I can't remember his name. But anyway, he, I worked at Hardee's at the time, and he said, guys, you know, y'all are lucky. He said, if you could save $100 a month, you're going to be a millionaire when you retire. And I remember thinking, well, gosh, I don't come from money, but I can save $100 a month. And um, it works. I mean, if you do the math on this, uh, a 30-year-old, now this is where, and I'm going to tell you how this ties into doing a 401k meeting, a 30-year-old needs to save $263 a month. A 40-year-old needs to save $754 a month. And those are all to get you to a million dollars. And my point with this and the way I use it in a meeting is because we had a simple presentation we did for a medical company what was that about three weeks ago, Bo? Uh, yeah, just. About. And um, one of the one of the nurses raised her hand and she goes, Brian, you know, the only problem I'm having with all this is, she goes, we don't have any money. You know, it, it, it's tough right now. We don't have a lot of money sitting out there. How are we supposed to pay the bills and then save for retirement? And I said, that's a great question, but this is where the system is skewed in your favor. Did y'all catch those numbers when I was giving it away? is that a one-year-old only has to save $14 a month, a 20-year-old has to save $95 a month, a 30-year-old has to save $263, and a 40-year-old has to save $754. What, what, what's the big thing that grabs you there? Bo, can you, can you figure it out? What do you think? Say it again. One-year-old only has to save $14 a month, 20-year-old has to save $95 a month, 30-year-old $263, a 40-year-old $754. Remember, this is to get to a million dollars by 65 you're young, you have to save a whole lot of money. Is what, it's what it's exactly me. right. And that, that's what I'm telling you. The system is skewed to your favor. If you start young, it's okay that you're broke. The system takes that into account. It's okay. If you're broke, we don't need you to put in much because you're young. You can save $95 a month and you'll still be a millionaire. It's for the people who get to be older and haven't started saving that they've got to really get to work. Because, you know, a 50-year-old who hasn't started saving and wants to become a millionaire has to save $2,413 a month. Now we're getting into a chunk of money. So these are the things. That's what I, I think that's, the, that's a key point. And I saw that nurse. It felt like, you know, she's, she started thinking. She was like, you know, that's right. You know, yeah, we're broke, but I could probably come up with a little bit of money. And, and you don't have to come up, don't have 95 bucks, do 50 bucks. I mean, still get you to the same place. You know, get you close because something's better than nothing. So 
I share that, and then y'all have heard me, if you've listened to this show, if you've been a long-time listener, another one I love to share, and I've added, I've, I've kind of updated this and added a third option, is what if you're a person who comes out of college, you're 22 years of age, and you decide, I'm going to hit this thing running, I'm going to save $2,000 a year. That's not a ton of money. Save $2,000 a year. I'm going to do it for nine years in a row. So I'm going to save a total of $18,000, because I feel like in nine years, probably go have the family, go have some kids, you know, a dog. Money's going to be a little tight, so I'm probably not going to be able to save anymore after I, after you know I do this for nine years because that's when i got to start paying all the bills. And then you have a friend who graduates same time, 22 years of age. They say, you know what, graduate, got this degree in my hand, time to kick it. Time to you know pay myself back for all this hard studying. But I'll tell you what, if I take this next nine years off from, from saving money, I promise when I start saving when I'm 31 years of age, I'm going to save until I get to be right at the end of my 65th birthday. You know, right? So I'm going to save for, for 35 years. That's what the other person says. I'm going to go save for the first nine, but I'm going to kick it up, and we're going to go 35 years in a row. So they're going to invest $70,000. I'm always amazed, and this is only assuming a 9% rate of return. The person who only saved $18,000 a year has an account that's worth a little over $579,000. The person who worked and saved for 35 years and invested $70,000 over that 35-year period is worth only four seventy. dollars It's a $109,000 difference. And it's in favor of the person who only saved $18,000. I'm always amazed with that. That's the power of being young and starting early. And then I, I, the thing I've updated here recently is I said, what if there's a third option? What if you could consistently save from 22 to 65 for a total of 44 years? What would happen if you did that $2,000 a year, $38.50 a week, and you earn 9%? Instead of that account being worth $579 for the person who only worked you know, and saved for nine years, or being you know, worth $470 for the person who you know, didn't save for the first nine years but then saved for 35 years in a row, it's going to be worth $1,126,000. But what about, wait a minute. That's stagnant. That's only saving $2,000 a year. What if you come out of school making more money? Remember, 15 to 20% is what you should shoot for of your gross income. And I know that sounds rough. And if you can't do 15 to 20%, do 2%, do 3%, 5%, whatever it is to get the company match. And then every time you get a pay raise, kick it up a notch. You can do it. Saving is very addictive. You don't hear anybody talking about that addiction because guess what? They own everything. So that's why, you know, nobody talks about addiction if it's a positive thing. But if you're saving $4,000 a year instead of 2000 so we're doubling it. Those numbers go exactly what you would think. They double. 2250 close to 253000 If you save $8,000 a year, you're pushing that number up over $4.5 million. Those are big numbers. I, I think that's incredible when I share that with people. And you can also see people light up. Their eyes kind of light up and catch it. And then we kind of, we closed it out before we went into the specifics about Roth 401ks and some of the other things they do is I, I you know, this is the one that always gets people because it, sh it really shows that you don't have to make a lot of money. I take examples. I said, let's put a face with the numbers. I said, let's just assume you're the good saver who saves 15% of your wages and you make 30 grand a year. You make 30 grand a year when you come out of school at age 22 and you make that all the way through 66 because, you know, remember when you're young, Social Security, you don't get to retire at 65. You got to kick it up a, a, a few extra years. So you save from 22 to 66, 44 years. You earn 10% on your investments. And here's the one I always put in bold face on the statement is you never receive a pay raise. 
So you come out making 30 grand, you never receive a pay raise. How much do you think you're going to have when you retire? You're going to have over three and a half million dollars. If you come out making 40 grand a year, never receive a pay raise, save exactly like I talked about. 15% of your wages, you're going to have $4.7 million. Come out making 50 grand a year. Save 15% of your wages from 22 to 66. You go have close to $6 million, 5.9. That's, that's real money. I don't care if you index that for inflation or whatever. That's a lot of money. You know what, what I think is really exciting about that? What? If you have like an employer-sponsored retirement plan where they offer some sort of match, you know, 3%, 4%, 5%, if you're, you don't even have to save all 15. Yeah, you know, you, that's you, true. You save 12%, you get 3% match, that's still 15. Or if you do hit that 15% number and they save 3%, so it's really 18% of your pay going in there, the numbers get even bigger. Yeah, and that's a great example because that's what we figured out when we did that presentation Monday is that, that that employer is just incredibly generous with their plan. The employee only has to put in 5% to get the other 10 because they have a profit sharing match I mean, they have a matching and then they have a profit sharing that goes in so if they put in five the company puts in all, another 10 percent of their wages in and, and you know it's no coincidence that 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 is one of our more highly participated 401k plans yeah, that I, we manage yeah. i think there's a i think out of a room full of people i'm talking about 70 80 people i think there's probably one or two people that didn't participate and i think they probably by the end of the meeting have felt so shamed that i bet they were grabbing an enrollment kit um after we left the room but that's i, I hope you guys I, I hope you can sense the passion in my voice about this because that's the stuff that really gets me going is when you talk about saving for retirement and i mean this is the stuff that's amazing me because it shows, and I think it's a good lead-in for me talking about this American exceptionalism. Um, I had two emails. Well, I had one email, and then I had a comment um, that was made to me. And I'm trying to think of which order how I'm going to do these. I think the first, what I'll, what I'll do is before I read, is I'll read the, the email, and then I'll come back to the blog that was posted. And by the way, I want to first say also, both people who wrote me were very polite. I can tell they're fans of the show, and I, I'm going to try to handle this just as well because I want us all at the end. I like it when, well, I think half the problem with the country right now is that instead of people um, having a, an honest, open discussion about things, it, it's very negative. It's very mean. Um, and, oh, by the way, Bo just held up that I'm not supposed to use names, so I'm glad you caught me before before I did use names. I think it's okay on the blog because yeah, yeah, I think that was his fine. is on the on the public site. But on the on the email I will not use um, his her name. I'll even uh, did I use any gender No that was references good right there. That was pretty yeah. sneaky yeah, on your no, part. That's pretty uh, probably threw him off. <laughs> but um okay the first let me read the email from from one of our listeners and um, I want the first thing I want you to know I have to put a word in your head because I'm gonna come back and, and kind of talk about why I talk about this word because both the blog, as well as this email, hit off of something I think we're a lot closer in viewpoints than they might even realize. Is Here's the word of the day, kind of like what Pee Wee Herman used to do. Is risk-free capitalism. Can you say that, Bo? Risk-free capitalism. Yep, that's, a, 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 that's, the, a, that's the word of the day, or words of the day, I guess, since it is plural. Okay, here's, here's the email that came to me. It said, Brian, Brian, Brian. Uh, so my name was written three times like, oh, no, no, it was probably Brian, Brian, Brian. 
That's probably that's, that's probably the way that I read it when yeah. I read Brian, it. Brian, Brian, Brian. You know, shaking your head, no, I can't believe this. I'm a longtime listener and a huge fan of the show, but your American exceptionalism show was hard to listen to. Where do I begin? I was a little shocked by your show because of the shows you have done in the past in which you have given a clear, balanced argument for both sides. However, this show was very one-sided, I felt. The invisible hand marketplace does not exist because people's self-interest are overpowered by greed, period. In the past 30 years, we have seen that the only way for our markets to work properly in a society as large as ours is to have effective regulation to protect those who would otherwise be taken advantage of. I think that the email, the key point there, 30 years, because like I said, we're going to be on the same page with some of this. I think it's going to be kind of shocking. So far, um, I don't think I've heard anything that I really disagree with yet. I think yeah. I'd agree with a majority of that. But well, let me back up because it says, um, in the past 30 years, we have seen that the only way for our markets to work properly in a society as large as ours is to have effective regulations to protect those who would otherwise be taken advantage of. Examples, the saving loans crisis of the 80s and the current financial crisis. Without oversight and regulation, parents watching the children Remember that, too, because I'm going to come back to that in a minute, too. A lot of these issues can and could have been avoided. It is pure greed that put us where we are today. I'll be honest. I don't even disagree with that statement, but I'm going to put this all, frame it, frame it in a minute. Communism works on paper. So does capitalism. So I guess, we're, okay. However, we are not in a pure capitalistic society. And if we were, the distribution of wealth would be a lot worse than it is now. We have to have regulation to make sure people are not taken advantage of. Thanks for your time. So I'm not going to, he, she, I'm not going to put any names because we, we promised that. So remember, what's the, what's the word for the day? Risk-free capitalism. Okay. Then we have a blog post. And this is from Justin. If you want to go check it out, go to money-guy.com. Go check out our American Exceptionalism. And Justin has a blog called No Kill Finance. So let's give Justin a, a plug there because he spent, he did a great job of, of well, writing out um, his thoughts on the show. He did a whole posting, blog posting on, on the show, which was kind of cool. And I got to tell you, Justin likes the show. It was very nice. I thought, I thought he was very cool about the way he presented all that. I did want to read some quotes. Because he, um, he talks about, um, he go, he's going through kind of doing a play-by-play of my American exceptionalism. And he says, what Friedman deliberately ignores and what Preston likely just fails to consider is that the system is stacked against a lot of people. The vast majority of them aren't rule breakers at all. They're people who were never given the chance to do better for themselves and worse yet, were never even told how they might try to do better for themselves. By providing his service as a free podcast, Preston crusades against financial illiteracy. But there are millions of Americas, Americans who don't even realize that they lack financial literacy. They assume that being tens of thousands of dollars in debt is just part of being an American. Or worse, they're resigned to the notion that there's no way to come back from such difficulties in America's society, in today's America's society. Um, or in, I added society in there. I don't know why I did it in today's America. I think it's because I was reading my notes here while I was reciting that. Then it also, I'm gonna, here's another quote from Justin, just a few paragraphs below or a paragraph below. Now, the income gap is at an all-time high. The few who best exploited, exploited the system's frailties and loopholes own an astonishing majority of the assets in our economy. Preston and his middle-class ilk are a dying breed, and the American dream seems more and more manufactured illusion, a nearly total falsehood about those at the bottom having a chance to someday become part of the unapproachable elite. 
So but that's, did I highlight it? Let me see if I highlight Yeah, I highlighted one more thing. Here it kind of, Justin closes out. He says, the free market shouldn't be about unmitigated competition because the inevitable end to that path is corporate ownership of the nation, a point we have already arguably reached. The free market should be tempered with balance for those who stand the highest risk of being run over by its progress. The least among us deserves more than what they're getting, and a free market doesn't have any safeguards built in to keep them from drowning. Okay, so now that Justin and he, she, you know, undisclosed person, email, let's talk about risk-free capitalism. Because I think that we're saying a lot of the same things. And hang on, i got to turn around and get some more notes so it's going to sound weird. Um, the, the email I read said something that I thought was very, very interesting. It's because they did make, they, they did, people don't even realize that we're saying a lot of the same things because they say the invisible hand marketplace. And remember, if you have to go back and listen to American exceptionalism, is the, the invisible hand was actually the concept. I was making the, I was bridging the th same thing Milton Friedman talked about is that what's incredible about America is that when our country was formed back in the 1700s, there was a brand new book that came out by Adam Smith called Wealth of Nations, which talked about this invisible hand where as long as you're working for your own self-interest, where you get to make decisions without being coerced, without you even realizing it, you work for the greater good because, you know, things get just start happening. It doesn't matter what religion you are, you know, which part of the world you're from. If you're working for your own self-interest, somehow... The, the free market system seems to be pointing you or pushing you in, a, in, a, in a, an invisible way um, to a certain way um, that's good for the greater good. So that's the invisible hand that, um, that, that was mentioned by the, the, the email author. I'm having a hard time not giving away he, she's, or, or whatever. So the invisible hand marketplace does not exist because people's self-interest are overpowered by greed. Period. In the past 30 years, we've seen that the only way for our markets to work, and that's the, and I'm I'm kind of cutting that sentence off halfway because what I wanted to mention to you was I think that he's right on, and I'm gonna go ahead and say he because I'm having a hard time going back and forth, but he is right on in the fact that it is true, and this is what's frustrating to me is that we have this risk-free capitalism that's been going on. It started back with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. Back in the, you know, what he did, he was, you know, 40 years ago, so add 10 years to the 30 years of this email that was written to me. 40 years ago, President Nixon put in a wage and price control because he was concerned inflation had broken 4%. And then you had President Carter, fellow Georgian, who, um, who came in in 1979 and bailed out Chrysler Corporation with a $1 billion loan. And then we've kind of, we, that's what started the wagon. You know, we got this thing going down the hill, and we've been bail out, bail out, bail out. You know, um, also the author mentioned from the 80s, we had the savings and loans crisis, which cost the country, um, the savings and loans was $125 billion um, that was contributed to a huge, that, you know, that we had to cover as taxpayers that contributed to deficits. And then we had this financial crisis, you know, that happened with the mortgage, you know, with Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae being bailed out by the governments as well as a lot of the private banks. And here's where I'm going to kind of bring this all, and then I'll come back over to Justin's blog, is that this risk-free capitalism is a dangerous thing. And I think this is what, when I, maybe I didn't make the point about the cronyism um, of what I'm talking about where corporations and others have figured out how they can exploit the political system 
for their own benefit. And Justin talks about that when he talks about agriculture in there, but it also works for just talking about American exceptionalism because now we have people taking tremendous risk and they're not worried about getting caught with it. The, the example is we're talking about the current crisis, what happened with the mortgage collapse, the real estate marketplace. What drove a lot of that? And it was greed. It was a lot of greed, but there was Here's what was going on. I've been managing securities long enough to be part of all this to see what was going on. And I can tell you right now what happened. You had, and this is making some things very simple that are much more complex, but I will tell you managing money, the thing that you heard, if anybody who's a professional money manager and they're talking about Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae was, hey, here's the secret. This stuff is yielding significantly better than T-bonds, treasury bills, all the stuff that's backed by the government but it's back too. So you buy this and you can get a few percentage points without any risk. Do it. You know, and that's what was going on back then. That was always what was whispered when you talked about these federally backed mortgages. Is that, hey, you can go do these things because they're backed by the good faith of the, the American government. So you had the government out there unloading tons of these products out there. And then here's the other thing that's bad. We started this back under Nixon where we had this bailout philosophy. So you had these bankers. Does anybody think it's coincidental that Paulson, who, by the way, George Bush, so everybody who's going to think that I'm, I'm one-sided, only hitting up on the, the left side of the aisle, that's not true, because here, let me go and give you one on the right side of the aisle, is that show I'm an equal opportunity guy who just wants the market to be good, fair, and work for everybody, is that does anybody think it's coincidental that Lehman Brother collapses, Bear Stearns goes under, but right as Goldman Sachs was about to, to, to take a nosedive, Paulson jumps in. Any coincidence in that? Treasury Secretary Paulson jumped in to help out his, his boys over at Goldman Sachs. I don't think that's any coincidence. I really don't. And that's that cronyism. We had people who took extreme risk. They went out there and put the company at jeopardy, and the government had to come in and bail them out. I don't know if they had to. That's what we were told. I'm not so sure they had to. And that's what I think that that's where these companies, and you know, I just saw an article that came out two days ago where Wall Street's going to issue some of the biggest bonuses in history. And Jim Cramer was on today's show, and he was like, yeah. And Matt Lauer said, "Is are any of these guys getting these bonuses the ones that got us into this mess? Jim Cramer's like, yeah. Yeah, that was my impersonation of Jim Cramer. And it's true, because why not? These are the guys that are experiencing this now, and they probably got the connections. This is what risk-free capitalism does for you, is they savings and loans. They made all these bad investments back in the 80s. Those guys got bailed out, $125 billion. Seems small now. It seems like every crisis, that, that bailout gets bigger and bigger. Let them fail. That's what I, you know, and I think that's what Main Street's saying, too. That's what, you know, even though I'm tied with the investments and other things, some of these things, if they're going to take so much risk, it needs to fail. Because that's the whole thing of capitalism. You have success, that risk-reward, if you only take as much risk as you can handle. These people took off huge wads of risk without any fear of, of actually being called to task for taking that much risk. And that's why the, the, what was the, the person who wrote this email says, without oversight and regulation, parents watching the children, a lot of these issues can and should have been avoided. Well, I want to put it another way. I've worked with enough wealthy families that you see, you know, you have um, the, fan, the, the, the parents who had the money, and they have Junior 
who has a trust fund or, or have, has a big or has the parents backing them up, they'll make some stupid decisions. When they go start a business, do you think they do a business plan? Nah, I'll go get a loan from pops or mom, and I'll just go do it. You, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go open up a restaurant, I'll go open up a bar, I'll go do these things, and then you know what happens? Six months later, they're broke. They've been bailed out by the fa- by the parents. So I'd argue that what's going on right now is not the parents watching the children. It's that we've got what the millionaire next door and, and Dr. Stanley and Thomas Stanley, what he talks about in the millionaire next door is we have economic outpatient care. We have a whole group of people that are taking on extreme risk without fear of losing because they're getting economic outpatient care from their parents, the government of the United States coming in and saying, hey, we'll bail you out. And you keep doing that, you're like, why? I'll go, I'll go take off more risk. Instead of learning the consequences of your action, why not? Let's go do more. We can profit off of this. That's not capitalism. That's risk-free capitalism. It doesn't work. Let me come over to Justin's blog because I thought Justin had some points that I wanted to kind of bring up. That, and I wanted to tell you the story. He, he mentioned in that paragraph where it says, but there are millions of Americans who don't even realize, oh, it was what Freeman deliberately ignores and what Preston likely just fails to consider is that the system is stacked against a lot of people. The vast majority of them aren't rule breakers at all. They're just people who were never given the chance to do better for themselves, and worse yet, were never even told how they might try to do better for themselves. Two things, real quick. Do y'all know how many millionaires, what the percentage of millionaires, but I'm asking you since you're the only one in the room, how many millionaires are first generation? Do you know the percentage? Um, I think I know what it is, so I'm not going to answer. It's 80%. How many of those, because I don't think you'll know this one, what percentage made their money in the last 15 years? Do you know that number? What percentage of millionaires made their made their money in the last 15 yep. years? Meaning that they're new. They're new money. This isn't passed down from generation to generation, mom and dad passing it down. I don't know. It's about 65%. Wow. That was done by an American Express study that, that came out a while back. You know, it might be a little different because the real estate marketplace has been crushed. But those numbers always stick to my head. If you read The Millionaire Next Door, 80% are first generation. And that's the story I want to tell also. I'm going to give you the story of John Preston. that name sound familiar? My name, by the way, is John Brian Preston. My, my dad was John Preston. My dad grew up on a dairy farm. Five brothers and a sister. Um, nobody went to college. Dirt poor. But dad was a big boy. Big lineman. I mean, he ended up going to college, playing football, and he got a physical education degree. You know, you're not exactly going to, to go discover, you know, Facebook or anything with a physical education degree, but it was a college degree, which was huge in his family. And, you know, and, and he was able to take that college degree and go out there and work as a salesman. Never made a great deal of money. You know, my mom was a school teacher. They made about the same amount of money. But they had me and my brother. And I always knew I was expected to go after an education. You know why I was expected to get an education? Because my dad had seen what it could do for him. Comes from nothing, dirt poor. I remember he showed me, I mean, we used to go to my grandmother's house over in Columbus, Georgia. By the way, he went to high school, Baker High. If you can go, uh, if you want to go check and figure out who was famous from Baker High, I'm not going to say because they'll divide some people. Bo's even figuring, trying to figure out who it is. But somebody from Columbus, Georgia that's pretty famous on the national scene that went to school with my father was three years older. But anyway, back to Columbus, Georgia, he, he went there and I went, used to remember, I remember going to my grandmother's house. It was a three bedroom house. Can you imagine how those kids slept? You know, it, it's just incredible. My point of this is, is that my dad went to college off of an athletic scholarship. 
from him, I was able to climb upon his shoulders, go to University of Georgia, get an, a, an accounting degree, and kind of shoot a little bit higher. And that's kind of been the way of America, is that we're hoping on the successes to grow upon the successes of our parents, the people before us, and kind of have a better life than even what our family members had, our parents had. And that's kind of been the promise we've always given each other. And that's what I tell you when I hear, and I know Justin, I can tell by how good his writing was, he doesn't really believe the system is this stacked against people. Because I would have given up a long time ago. And I will tell you, I'm not rich yet, but I'm well on my way. I would put myself in probably the top 10% of probably people my age on probably savings, income, and net worth. I mean, I, I practice what I preach. And I don't come from money, though. I'm trying to do this myself, and I think that's it's the numbers are the proof is in the numbers. Eighty percent of people, I know we get caught up watching the Paris Hiltons of the world and the reality shows that follow these super uber rich people, but that's the exception. That's not the rule, and and I, I just draw that to your to you know just because that that bothered me because I don't think I hope everybody's not that that feeling that the system is stacked against them because and that's why I told those kids when I was at that middle school the, this uh, this afternoon was that. You know, guys, school is the tail that follows you around. Study, try hard, and opportunities open up. And it really is true. And I, and, and I, I hope that the negativity that I'm seeing, I, I can just tell how sharp Justin is that he doesn't truly believe that the system's stacked. I think he probably feels, because I think this is the way most people are, they think the system's stacked against everybody else, but they probably feel like they're doing great in the system. And I think a lot of us are that way. You know, you work hard, you do what you're supposed to, but you worry about the neighbor. And you worry about this person, but if you ask yourself how you're doing, you think you're doing well. Um, so I, I just can tell Justin's too bright to think that the system's truly stacked against everybody. He also goes on, he says, now the income gap is an all-time high. The few who were exploited, who, the few who best exploit the system's frailties and loopholes own an astonishing majority of the assets in our economy. Preston and his middle-class ilk are a dying breed, and the American dream seems more and more manufactured illusion. A nearly total falsehood about those falsehood about those at the bottom having a chance of someday becoming part of the approachable elite. And that's the other thing. I just, Bo, you've worked with me for a few years now, and you know we work with a lot of small business owners. That's right. where the majority of our wealthy clients are, and I think that's probably where the majority of that eighty percent of new wealth is coming from small business owners. How many of them do you think are SOBs? None. None, I mean, that, none that we work with. Well, I mean, we have, I got to tell you guys, I mean, my business is growing. We've had other things. we got some personnel decisions we're trying to make right now, and some of them are keeping me up at night. And, you know, it's because I'm trying to do the best thing I can for, for everybody that's involved through everything that's going on. And it's hard, It really, you know, to try to do the best thing for people. And, and I, don't, I don't know. I'm probably going off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I promise you, everybody, I'm sure there's SOBs out there. There's SOBs everywhere. But I think the vast majority of business owners, self-made people, probably didn't get there by, by walking all over people. Stepping all, stepping all over people. I mean, I know some very successful salespeople, and one of the things I think that makes them so successful is people just like them. I mean, they're just likable people. They live a good life. Um, you know, you just want to give them business because you just can tell that they're, they're doing the right thing and you want to help them out. And you'll like them. And I don't know, maybe I'm gullible in that way, or maybe I'm too, you know, as I said in the previous podcast, square. But that's the thing. And, you know, and Justin closed it out. I kind of read that out was the free market shouldn't be about unmitigated competition because the inevitable end to that path 
is corporate ownership of the nation. Well, I, cronyism does concern me. I think that we do have a system that's working hard, um, too much for the cronyism, a point we've already arguably reached. The free market should at least be tempered with balances for those stand the highest risk of being overrun by its progress. And I agree. I mean, there's a reason, and the example I give on, to, on some things is like gas stations. I live off Interstate 75 here in Georgia, and there's an exit that um, the gas price is just always high. You know, and the government's supposed to keep gas stations from colluding with each other. You know, you're not supposed to get anybody, you know, getting together and saying, we're going to price fix. And this is why I don't think the system is completely fixed is because you're supposed to have people, you know, that the government needs to be regulated because they can't be doing this price fixing and things. Well, guess what happened? QT put a gas station on that same exit where all the other four stations were. Two of them have gone out of business. And all the rest have lowered their prices to, to be in line with everything else. Competition is a beautiful thing as long as it is kept on an open, free, equal platform. And that's why I think I don't think we're too far off. I do think regulation that is there to ensure that you don't have monopolies, that you don't have people gouging. Justin, I think we're on the same page. But I do think competition is a beautiful thing. I mean, there's a reason you can go to Walmart and buy a, a, a you know a 50-inch TV for $600, whereas, you know, four years ago to cost you $3,000 mm-hmm. is because, you know, over time things get more efficient, competition is just a very competitive marketplace. The same reason by, you know, computers now for less than $1,000. I remember when that happened the first time, you know, when computers went under 1000 Then people said, are we ever going to have $500 computers? And it wasn't a few years later, you had the little micro computers for under 500 it, system's truly amazing. And that's why, you know, I had one more email, Bo, you're going to have to write that, that listener that we wrote and said we were going to respond, tell them, we'll get them next, next podcast. But I want to close out on a positive note and tell you, just like Milton Friedman had said in that, you know, in that quote, that he didn't know if there was going to be enough creativity, ingenuity to bypass all the, the negative things that were going on. What if we're in that moment right now, that we have something just right over the edge, the dawn of tomorrow or the next two years that's going to revolutionize something, some new technology, some new thing that's going to, you know, be maybe a medical uh, discovery. Maybe it's going to be a technology discovery. Who knows what it's going to be, but what if it could change our life and you're a part of it um, because you're investing in, you know, monthly for your own retirement. You're doing all these things. I, I just, I, that's the part. I like to, to kind of embrace the optimistic side of things. I think that's the only way you can keep your sanity in this crazy world we're in right now. And I just appreciate Justin as well as the other person um, who, who wrote us the email. Thanks, guys, for, for sharing your thoughts. I hope you didn't think we were picking on you. I just, you know, I wanted to give you kind of our side of the coin to tell you that I don't think we're too far off. I think, it, you know, we're just not seeing, we're not connecting the dots the same way. But I do think we're not too far off with the with the the whole discussion. So, if you like what we say, you know, check us out. You can go to money-guy.com. You also um, can go check us out on iTunes. We always are looking for positive feedback. And maybe you know, guys, if you, if there's some other way to deliver this thing outside of iTunes that you can't find us on, tell us about it. You know, let us know. We're always looking for different avenues to distribute the show to get out there as in front of as many people as possible. And on that side of the, the discussion, you also need to tell your friends and family. If you love what we're doing, if you got excited about retirement savings today, go tell somebody about it. Bo, you got anything you want to close it out with? No, I think that's it. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening to The Money Guy Show. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. 